0: Zareen Caldwell, your hostess for the Soul Salons. Today, I'm going to feature a short work by Ralph Waldo Emerson called The Oversoul. Emerson was an American poet, essayist, and philosopher during the mid-19th century. Unlike some of those whom I feature on this series, Emerson was not what I would call a great prophet or religious teacher, per se. But it was clear to me that he thought deeply about topics like the divine mind, the nature of the soul, and true knowledge. And so that's why I wanted to focus on him a bit today. I really liked his essay called The Oversoul. It is considered to be one of Emerson's greatest writings, actually, and was published in 1841. I had never heard of it before a few weeks ago, but I enjoyed reading it because I thought that it offered a lot of insightful day-to-day kind of wisdoms. It also appealed to me because it's short. My last episode was reviewing a work that was over 200 pages. Emerson's Oversoul essay, in contrast, was less than 20 pages. Focusing on a really short work now and then is one of the ways that I can keep myself somewhat sane in doing this series. So what's a good summary of the Oversoul? I would say that it's about a universal spirit that manifests in the world through the individual soul. Man is a stream whose source is hidden, Emerson says early in the work. We live in succession, in division, in parts, in particles. Meantime, within every man is the soul of the whole, the wise silence, the universal beauty, to which every part and particle is equally related, the eternal one. Emerson uses words all capitalized incidentally, like the one, wisdom, the supreme critic, the highest law, and ultimately the oversoul to define this universal spirit. He also mentions the word God with a capital G over two dozen times in this short essay. About this force, he says, I dare not speak for it. My words do not carry its august sense. They fall short and cold. Only itself can inspire whom it will. And behold, their speech shall be lyrical and sweet and universal as the rising of the wind. I find myself drawn to passages like this because they have what I call a flowing, ethereal, uplifting quality, as well as great imagery. Here's another example from the essay. But the soul that ascends to worship the great God is plain and true, has no rose color, no fine friends, no chivalry, no adventures, does not want admiration, dwells in the hour that now is, in the earnest experience of the common day. Emerson talks a lot about the soul in this one essay, and I will get back to that, but I'd like to introduce you to Emerson himself first. Ralph Waldo Emerson lived from 1803 to 1882 and mostly in Massachusetts. His father was a Unitarian minister and for a few years in his late 20s, Emerson himself served as a junior pastor of a similar church. Emerson walked away from that role early in his life and some would later label him an atheist, but I wouldn't have called him that. He just saw God as being in the world or part of the world versus separate from the world. He also believed one could have direct experience of the divine and didn't necessarily need an intermediary. I agree with that in part, but not completely, because I think divine teachers are sent to us, quite often and consistently, to serve as a connecting link between us and the unknowable essence that is God. But I probably do share Emerson's view that we can independently investigate truth for ourselves, On that note, Emerson grew up in a Christian tradition, but he was apparently quite influenced later in his life by Hindu and Greek philosophy, among others. After the death of his young wife from tuberculosis and a one-year trip to Europe, Emerson returned to the United States and began to pursue a path in teaching, lecturing, and writing. He took on a prominent role in the Transcendentalist movement in roughly his early 30s. This movement is hard to explain in a nutshell, but it's centered around the importance of nature, self-reliance, the living in the now idea, and as I said earlier, an individual's direct experience with the divine. In doing research for this episode, I learned about something called the Lyceum Movement. The organizations involved in this movement aim to improve the intellectual and moral fabric of society by sponsoring lectures, dramas, and debates. It flourished in the mid 19th century. And I guess you could say it was a more spiritual version of today's TED Talks. And speaking of lectures, Emerson gave about 1500 lectures across the United States during his lifetime. It's kind of amazing when you think about that. Keep in mind that this was before airplane travel and way before the internet. So he would have had to travel most likely by train at that time to all of those different locations. Some of his lectures were subsequently published in essay form, including the Oversoul. If I were living in the mid-19th century, I think I would have been really interested in being involved in the Lyceum movement, which makes me reflect on whether I wasn't just born in the wrong time. Sometimes I think I belonged in a simpler, perhaps more community-oriented era. I often feel completely overwhelmed by life in the beginning of the 21st century. Then again, I suppose every era has its various pros and cons. Getting back to the essay, Emerson addresses the nature of the soul. He says it is not an organ, but something that lights and animates all of our organs and the background of our being. I like that analogy. In that context, he says the soul can show up in times of reverie, conversation, passion, and dreams. He talks about its qualities too. When it breathes through his or man's intellect, it is genius. When it breathes through his will, it is virtue. When it flows through his affection, it is love. He adds that the soul is not purity and justice and beneficence, but that it requires all of those things to be alive and powerful in a sense. He talks about the transience of this life compared to the more permanent landscape of the soul. The soul looketh steadily forwards, he says, creating a world before her, leaving worlds behind her. She has no dates, nor rights, nor persons, nor specialties, nor men. The soul knows only the soul. The web of events is the flowing robe in which she is clothed. I note that the soul is referred to as a she here, which seems to be the case in a number of works that I've featured in the soul salons. I find that quite interesting. Another theme that Emerson addresses is how we, as individuals, always seek to find answers to questions like how long we are going to exist, what we are supposed to be doing with our lives, and whose company we should be keeping. I suppose many of us would have liked to have received better instructions on how we were supposed to use our talents in this world. I don't know about you, but I feel like I've done way too much waffling around, as I call it. But maybe we are, we are all asking the wrong questions. Emerson implies there is no real answer to what he calls these sensual questions, and he takes it one step further. These questions which we lust to ask about the future are a confession of sin, he says. God has no answer for them. No answer in words can reply to a question of things. In the latter part of the essay, Emerson addresses how God should be the center of our lives. I've been thinking a lot about this lately myself, and I like how Emerson puts it. He says that if a person has found this center, the deity will shine through him, through all the disguises of ignorance, of ungenial temperament, of unfavorable circumstance. The quality of wisdom is another topic that Emerson focuses on in this essay, and incidentally, he doesn't think that only a particular class of people has a corner on this market. Much of the wisdom of the world is not wisdom, he says. Among the multitude of scholars and authors, we feel no hallowing presence. We are sensible of a knack and a skill, rather than of inspiration. They have a light, and know not whence it comes, and call it their own. Emerson seems to be referring to ego here, and perhaps how it can block the channel of true inspiration. He goes on to talk in this essay at some length about those who have been caught up in society's trappings. But he also refers to those who have enlarged their heart and who have connected to the oversoul, in a manner of speaking. I will close this episode with a couple of ideas from the end of the essay that really captured my attention. Emerson offers an analogy about how one runs to meet a friend but does not find him. He then suggests that maybe that is for the best, because it wasn't meant to be. The things and people that are really meant for us will gravitate to us, he claims. I know that I have spent a fair amount of time in my life chasing friendships and relationships, particularly with family members whom you think should be there for you, basically. But I've started to realize over time that, you know, all of these relationships aren't necessarily respectful or reciprocal. So should we really be investing our time there? I think maybe Emerson is saying, don't spin your wheels, but let the universe bring the right people that are meant for you into your lives. There's another concept that Emerson raises in The Oversoul that really made me stop and think. He said, You are preparing with eagerness to go and render a service to which your talent and your taste invite you, the love of men and the hope of fame. Has it not occurred to you that you have no right to go unless you are equally willing to be prevented from going? Maybe we don't always have a right to achieving certain dreams unless we are also equally willing to be prevented from reaching them, as Emerson says. That comment is worth some reflection, I think, and speaks to the quality of detachment. And again, maybe how we chase after people and things that aren't right for us. Emerson mentions in a couple of places in the Oversoul how we can become God. I don't share his views on that subject although I do believe we all have qualities of the divine. Regardless, I appreciated his contemplations in this short essay on the nature of the soul and his insightful advice on ways we could better tune into our everlasting nature, as he called it. The end of the essay claims that for one who does learn how to do this, or tune in to the oversoul, he will weave no longer a spotted life of shreds and patches, but he will live with a divine unity. He will cease from what is base and frivolous in his life and be content with all places and with any service he can render.